spend a portion of our message time going through this, and that may feel a little odd, but once I explain it, hopefully this will make sense. One of the reasons I chose Hebrews as the main book that we would go through as a church together at first is because of magnificent passages like Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. We spent, I think it was 10 weeks just going through that one passage. And I'll read it to you again. Hopefully you have it for the most part memorized. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then also from Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I was just reading uh, the Acts of the Apostles just the other day. You saw this idea just reaffirmed again. If you remember the story, Paul is uh, beaten and stoned uh, within an edge of his life, uh, within an inch of dying. So this is what's happening uh, at Lystra, chapter 14, Acts 14, beginning in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, now catch this, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. So there are already Christians in these cities where Paul doubles back and he goes back through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And what he does is strengthen the brothers. So imagine having received Christ, all right? Paul has just passed through your city. He's gone on to a few other cities. Maybe he's gone for a few months and he comes back. He's not trying to get you to believe in Jesus again, right? We believe that once you're changed and you're saved by Jesus, he doesn't just lose you. But Paul wants to strengthen and encourage the believers. Oh, that the Lord would give us more people who are given to encouragement. Who saw it as their mission. I will encourage the brothers. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do. They double back when they go through these cities where they already gone to encourage them. And then he says this fascinating word, committing them to the Lord in whom they have believed. 
Schiertzlitz makes the observation that it is when we love most that we make the most meaningful promises. Think about a wedding. Think about a point where a person goes from being a citizen of one country to another country. Think about when you enter into a contract that you've been trying to work out with another business partner for a long time. There's great joy and happiness when you finally get to a point of reaching an agreement. You make promises out of an overflow of love and joy. You're committing yourself to certain things. And that is the spirit behind this covenant. If we're going to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, if we're going to seek to commit each other to what we have been saved into, then it's going to take the form of biblically grounded promises. Okay, These aren't just made up out of thin air. They are resoundingly biblical, I believe. I've sought feedback from everyone in this church and pastors um, from other churches to give feedback on this. and uh, I, I do think after a process of many months that this represents the core of what it means to exhort one another every day. And what type of promises we make and what type of commitments we're called to make as Christians. And so what is the joy? What is the happiness? What is, what is that love that we should feel that should drive us to want to make commitments? Right? When you're in love and you get married to your, the love of your life, obviously you feel that deeply. It's deeply emotional, it's deeply spiritual, and you want to make grand and lasting promises to that person. It's not because you're under obligation, you want to. So for you, Christian, what is the joy, what is the happiness, what is that deep satisfaction of the soul that would make you want to make promises like this? Is it just, is it only that we have been saved from our sins? If it were, that would be enough, I would argue. If, if all it was is that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins and he calls us to live a new life, that ought to be enough for us. But I would argue just viewing how much you've been forgiven is not the main foundation of what your heart should feel to make these kinds of promises. Christianity is unique from all other religions in this one way. The foundation of our joy, of our happiness, is God himself. God himself. In any other religion, let's just take Islam, for example. You're not meant to enjoy God. You're meant to obey him. The whole word Islam means submission. You're supposed to submit to and obey him and receive his blessings, but not to receive him, not to rejoice in him. You're supposed to rejoice in obeying and rejoice in doing all the things that he's commanded you to do and in the paradise that he will give you, but not in himself. He's transcendent. You can't have Allah. In Buddhism, you're supposed to reach enlightenment. And you're not even supposed to feel anything. No joy, no sadness, no sorrow. Enlightenment. Perfect placidness. Nothing. And I could go through, this isn't going to be a lesson on the different world religions, but Christianity is unique. We do not serve God to receive his blessings only. Yes, he does bless us with his blessings, but the joy we receive 
is because in Christ he is giving us himself. That is the great treasure of the gospel. It's not just that we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven so that we can have God. And that is the ground of your joy. And that if you want to see him, he who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. If what you want is God, O Christian, that on that day when you think about heaven, it's not necessarily the pearly gates or the streets of gold or seeing all the people you miss. It's I want God. I want to know him. One thing I ask and that I would seek to dwell in the house of the Lord all my days, to gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple. I want God. Like the song says, one of my favorites, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. All the success, all the dreams, all the retirement plans, all the money, all the family relationships that are good and even blessings from God. But if it comes down to choosing between those things and him, I will have him. Because that is the ground of my joy, that he has given me himself. That is the greatest blessing of being a Christian. And that's why joy, rejoicing, is uniquely Christian. We don't just get happy because we get some things we want. We've been given the very best thing in the universe, God himself. And that was the plan for all time. That is why you and I were made in the image of God. Again, a uniquely Christian idea. Made for God. Made to know him and receive him. To have him. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, who is his body. In the gospel, God the Father has given Christ the Son to <coughs> And that's stunning. And that ought to, if you're a believer in Christ, that ought to stir you in a way that you don't have to think through and plan. As you're hearing me say these words about receiving God and having him, that ought to start to move things at a seismic level in your heart when you remind yourself that the great glory and promise of heaven is to have God. And that he's already beginning to give himself in a more full way to you. This is what it means to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, to another as we behold the glory of the Son of God. So as we go through these promises and these commitments that make up this proposed new covenant, I hope you hear that. This is a celebration. Because God has given us this great foundation of joy, this is what we get to commit to each other concerning. And I'll begin by reading the very last of this. If you have it, the copy, you can just turn it over to the other side. And it says, In all of this, we will rely on the power of the Holy Spirit for the strength and wisdom needed to keep this covenant with our brothers and sisters. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. That's a very important statement. It's not just a throwaway line at the end of this. This is only possible through the Spirit. None of us are going to keep these promises perfectly, and that's not the spirit of this covenant. It's what we are committing ourselves to seek, committing ourselves to strive for. So here we go. And, and let me just say, I would have printed out for each of you all of the verses completely, but it's eight pages, and it's a really small font. Okay, and I've got excellent vision, so I'm, I'm probably the only one that can read it this small. So, 
You can look them up, but just know that it's available for you with all the verses printed out. And I'll, we'll try to get that out in the email as well, but it, it has them there as well. So, the first. By God's grace, again, that's that idea. By God's grace, with all of our soul, I'm sorry, having repented of sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, having been baptized according to his command, and believing that he has led us to join this, the fellowship of this church, we solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with each other. As members of North Star Baptist Church, we will love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls. I'm sorry. As Father, Son, and Spirit, the only God, with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds, glorifying Him in everything, rejecting pride and idols. And I'll just read a few verses. This is one that you should be very familiar with. Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Jesus, when he quotes that to the lawyer, he changes might to mind. So I think that's what we should understand there, and that's why it's worded as mind here in the text. Also from 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whatever you, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the idea of with this. We're glorifying God and we're rejecting idols because He is our joy. He is the foundation of our happiness. So committing yourselves to love the Lord is just reciprocating what He's already done for you. We will love the Lord our God by submitting to Jesus Christ alone as Lord of all things and our lives, forsaking all others for Him as the source of our joy and hope. From Philippians 2, 9 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus is our Lord. And we're not just Christians in general who believe in God, in some sense made the creation. We're Christians because Jesus is Lord. We confess Him as our Lord and forsaking all others for Him. Jesus says in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What He comes to do is to give us life and life to the full. So in committing yourself to Him, you're essentially saying He is the source of my joy. He is my one and only hope. And so we're forsaking all others. The, the marriage language is intentional in that phrase. He is the bridegroom of the church. We will love the Lord our God by walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, striving for holiness in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. From Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We don't believe in work salvation Obviously, we don't. It's only by faith in Christ alone that you can be saved. 
but he saved us to live a certain way. He has called us to be holy. If you have hope in Christ, you purify yourself as he is pure. So that's the spirit behind that. We're going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We will love the Lord our God by renewing our minds by the Holy Spirit to conform to, defend, and hold fast to God's word, rejecting teachings that are contrary to it. From Jeremiah 30, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 23, 16 through 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, fulfilling, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. A passage rings true today, probably even more than it did in Jeremiah's time. There are so many false teachings out there who say that people who walk in a lifestyle completely contrary to the word of God and just say, it'll be all right, you're okay. God does meet you where you are, but he begins to change you and purify you. And it is false teaching that pervades our culture even now that says you can be a faithful Christian and also have all of these ungodly things in your life without issue, without making war on them. And also, Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to appeal to you to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is a it's not just the apostles contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He is writing to his congregation, at telling them, commanding them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's the church's responsibility to contend for the faith. We will love one another even as we love ourselves. By using all that God has given us, not only for our own needs, but also for the needs of others. From John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then from Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all that had need. It is the spirit of one who loves God that you love your brothers. How can you say that you love God if you hate your brother whom you have seen? God you have not seen. How can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you hate your brother whom you have not seen? love one another even uh, by striving for unity among the members of this church by counting others more significant than ourselves and praying for one another. From Romans 15 five, uh, verses 5 and 6 May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a stunning passage. May God grant to you that 
she would live together in such harmony that all together, with one voice, she would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That it's a work of the Spirit that we would be unified and have such harmony with each other that we could all exalt the Lord of God together. That is the vision of Paul for the church. And also from uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 3. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Christ is our example. As believers in Christ, we follow his example, and so being humble towards each other and seeking unity and seeking accord with one mind should be our goal. We will love one another by encouraging, exhorting, and rejoicing with one another, bearing one another's burdens, and confessing our sins to one another. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. In James 5, 15-16. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. This statement, encouraging and exhorting, that one, because of Hebrews 3, the passage I read at the beginning, and Hebrews 10, that one kind of encapsulates the entirety of this covenant that we would be making to each other, encouraging and exhorting and rejoicing with one another and bearing one another's burdens. This ought to happen on a daily basis between all of us. This is what you get to do as a Christian. You get to participate in the work of God to bring many sons to glory by encouraging and exhorting your brothers and sisters in Christ. We will love one another by having fellowship with one another, meeting together regularly, taking part in the preaching of God's word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and practicing hospitality. Again, just a passage from Hebrews 10. It's so significant in my thinking. We'll need to back to read it again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We will honor God in our families by bringing up our children and any under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to believe in, love, and obey Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7, And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. So after he gives them the command that you should remember these commands that I'm giving you, the immediate next thing he tells them is, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The first movement of the soul after having received the commands of God is to entrust those commands to the people you love most, especially your family. Ephesians 6, 
bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is why we actually set aside so much time in our church on the doctrine of family. We covered it last Sunday in our Sunday school hour. We will spend at least two more weeks looking at the doctrine of the family. What the enemy attacked in Genesis 3 was the family. God is the Lord of the family. The husband leaves. The wife helping and implied bringing in children. And the enemy attacked it. The serpent subverting everything, making the wife be deceived, and the wife leading the husband astray, and the husband sinning against God, participating in the wife's rebellion. The enemy attacks the family. You can see that in our culture. Any problem, even from secular studies, you can see that fatherlessness in particular and the dissolving of the family, God's first institution that he created for the human society, is fractured. We will honor God in our families by guarding the glory, sacredness, and finality of marriage, practicing all biblical means of love, growth, healing, reconciliation, and forgiveness as Scripture commands. And I would just go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Biblical teaching on marriage is not popular, and it's under assault even within the church. And so what we're saying here by this commitment to guard the glory, the sacredness, finality of marriage is that we will do what the Bible commands to seek reconciliation, growth and healing and forgiveness. And I'll just say as an aside and I feel like it's an important thing to say, there are biblical grounds for divorce. But it only becomes a biblical ground for divorce if you've already done your part to seek reconciliation and healing. Sometimes that's not possible, and that's very heartbreaking. But insofar as it is up to you, live at peace with all men. In so much as it is your purview and your responsibility and doing what you must do before the Lord, you must seek to reconcile, seek to love as much as possible. By, uh, we
we will honor God and our families by always honoring our mothers and fathers and all those in God-ordained authority over us. And while in our parents' care, obeying and submitting to them in the Lord. From Exodus chapter 20, this is one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And then Paul reaffirms this command in Ephesians 6, 1-3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. An important clarification on this one. Honoring your father and mother is something that you ought to do even after you leave their home. And this is why it's worded this way. By always honoring our mothers and fathers and all those in God-ordained authority over us, and while in our parents' care, so it's setting aside a different type of honoring, if you're in your parents' care, obeying and submitting to them in the Lord. We will honor God and our families by humbly embracing our God-given complementary roles as revealed in God's word, providing for the needs of our household. Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast, and out of the field every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The way God created Adam and the, the man and the woman, or who we call Adam and Eve, is unique and different than all the other creatures. And the way God has designed human genders is special. And this, again, is under assault in our culture. And so what we're saying here is that we're going to embrace how God made us and how he intended the genders to interact with each other. You can go to Ephesians 5. 22 and through 33 again to see that. The last section. We will seek first the kingdom of God by submitting to the leadership and discipline of this church body while also lovingly exhorting our leaders to faithfulness and godliness. So many passages we could go to on this. But I want to draw your attention to wording of this phrase, submitting to the leadership and discipline of what? Pastor Joshua, your deacons, of this church body. Yes, me, Brother Tom, and the deacons have a unique role as leaders, and Hebrews 13.7 says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls 
as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. But ultimately, the one that you're accountable to is your brother and sister, because we, especially as Baptists, believe that the leaders are appointed by the body. So you're submitting to the leadership of this church and the discipline of this church. This is a hard teaching, especially regarding discipline, but it's really just because of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13 I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, of the greedy, of swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not, it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's a difficult text. And as faithful Christians, we must obey. Submitting to the discipline of this church body means to open yourself up to criticism that is biblical. And when a brother or sister says something to you, Pointing out an area in your life where you need to change, that is a serious matter, and you need to take it under consideration. Exhort one another every day, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, leading you to fall away from the living God. This is serious. It's not just that we're an exclusive club. We want each other to make it home. And it's not just that the responsibility of you as a believer is to submit to the leadership and discipline of this church, but also you have a responsibility to exhort your leaders. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, specifically talking about leaders, which we could also say it's about all the congregation, but specifically in this text, for leaders, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and in Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. It's your responsibility to exhort and to keep in line your leaders. So it's a both and, it's a two-way street, and that's why it's worried that way. I spent more time on this because I know that can be a sticking point for we will seek first the kingdom of God by giving cheerfully to the support of this ministry, the spread of the gospel, and the relief of the poor and those in need. Here's a fascinating text on this. Psalm 19, I'm sorry, Proverbs 19, verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to God, and he will repay him for his when you give to the needy, when you give to the poor, and you're generous to those who have not, you are lending, you're essentially creating a debit from God towards you. That's the dynamic that Solomon gives here. It's not that there's actually a bank with a ledger and you're shown to be having lended to God, but he feels that way towards you. He 
sees you as not having given necessarily to the poor, but having given to him, he will repay you with blessing. Also Luke 12, verses 33 and 34. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old with treasure in the heavens that does not fail. For no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then from Galatians 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. As we have opportunity, or as often as we have opportunity, let us do good for everyone. And especially those who are of the household of faith. We will seek first the kingdom of God by seeking the salvation of our family, friends, and neighbors through a pure and holy example and speaking the truth in love. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21 All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's worded specifically this way, seeking the salvation of our family, friends, and neighbors through a pure and holy example, and speaking the truth in love. There are those who say that you can do it well with one or the other. And the, the fans of doing the holy and pure example are, are antagonistic towards actually saying something. And those who are pro-actually saying something think that living a holy and pure example and being loving isn't that important. You have to have both as a Christian, a holy and pure example and speaking the truth in love. And lastly, we will seek first the kingdom of God by keeping the spirit of this covenant, not the exact wording, the spirit of this covenant in fellowship with another biblical church if the Lord leads us elsewhere. So if you agree to this covenant, does that mean you have to remain a, a member of this church forever? No. And in fact, if you're leaving to go to another biblical church that has some type of expectation, whether it's written or not, to live this way for each other, then you're in keeping with the covenant. But it should not be okay for us to see a brother or sister walk out these doors and never come back and never attend a church again. The spirit of this covenant means that we'll go after you. That you in that situation would be the one sheep that has wandered away. And we will leave the 99 and we will come get you and implore you to come back to the Lord. Even if that means you're going to a different church, it doesn't bother us at all. But you must commit yourself to the Lord in the context of another biblical church if the Lord leads you elsewhere. And I'll read the last part again. In all this, we will rely on the power of the Holy Spirit for the strength and wisdom needed to keep this covenant with our brothers and sisters. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. So if you have this, if you're a covenant member, feel free to use a pen or um, borrow a pen. And if you are currently a member of North Star Baptist Church and approve this proposal,
proposed covenant to become our new church covenant, replacing the old covenant, you can circle the word yes. If you're currently a member of Northside Baptist Church and do not approve of this proposed covenant, and it won't offend me if you circle no, you can circle that. And if you're interested, if having seen this as the essence of our commitment to work towards each other, and you're interested in becoming a member, and want to go through the process of becoming a member, just circle where it says membership. And it's completely optional for you to put your name and to sign. The reason I put it there is because if you're interested in becoming a member, you just circle membership, and then you fold it up and hand it in. I don't know who you are. I can't talk to you about becoming a member. And also, if this is voted in as our new covenant, then you're going to need to sign this anyway. So if you're a covenant member and you agree to this, might as well just sign your name so I don't have to come find you again to get your signature on it as our covenant. So again, this is all as a result of our love for one another. We love one another. We've been given the love of Christ, and we've been given God himself. This is the ground of our rejoicing. And so God calls us to purify ourselves and to commit to one another in special ways. And I would just say that these words in this covenant are an attempt to distill and line out in an orderly manner what these Bible verses call us to do. I think they are a faithful representation of the Bible. If you don't think they're a faithful representation of the Bible, feel free to circle no and hand it in. So what I would encourage you to do is to give your answer and to fold it however many times you want and hand it into the offering plate when it comes by. Okay? So I want to pray for us, and then we will hear uh, a testimony, but it's two testimonies, actually, before we take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you so much that you've given us this opportunity to commit to one another, that through the words of your apostles, you are again committing us to the Lord in whom we have believed. I pray that these words would represent the desires of our hearts and what we really want to be as your people. And it wouldn't be just a piece of paper that we sign. I pray for your grace and your mercy on us as we continue through the service. In Jesus' name. So today we're going to hear a couple of testimonies. Uh, the Hueys uh, have come forward wanting to join uh, our church. Scott is actually in uh, South Korea right now. And so uh, Joy is going to read Scott's testimony. And then next week we will present them for membership since they'll all be here at the same time. But right now I would like Joy and Sarah uh, to share their testimonies. It was actually a year ago, um, I guess we'll be on, on Tuesday, that um, my family and I first came to um, up to this area to um, visit Lisa and made the decision to move here from um, Asheville, North Carolina, and um, we're glad to be here. Um, and so we are going to briefly um, give us um, our testimony about um, how the Lord saved us. Um, when growing up in a Christian family, I think the the big part about about coming to salvation is realizing that you're not saved just because you've you've grown up and done the things that that you do when you grow up in a Christian family. So um, I was in the fourth grade when 
um, I came to the decision that I needed to make that decision um, to believe and to um, confess my sins and to um, realize that that I wasn't saved. And so um, it was actually in Sunday school um, when I came to that realization. Because, you know, as a child and grow up in a Christian home, you ask Jesus and cheer every night before you go to bed. <laughs> you know, that's kind of just what you do. And um, so I realized that I really need to, to make a, a personal decision. But it wasn't really until about two years later, um, with kind of wrestling back and forth with God um, during those two years about making that decision. And so um, it was when I was in the sixth grade that... Um, I realized that I I needed to, to make a decision. And so um, I actually went up forward at church, and the first thing that the pastor said was, you're not already a Christian? Like, he had thought I'd already been a Christian and baptized and, you know, and all of that. And I was like, no. So he's like, okay, well, do you want to just um, say this prayer after me? Or, you know, and I'm like, no, I want to do it myself. <laughs> and so um, I prayed that um, the Lord would forgive me and that he'd be Lord of my life um, and um, save me. And that's um, when I really started um, my walk in Christ um, as a Christian. And um, Sarah is going to share hers, and then I will read um, actually a, a little shortened version of what Scott wrote. If you want to know his life story, you can ask him. <laughs> yeah. I was in preschool and I was sitting down and my sister um, Emma came up to me and she said, do you want to become a Christian? And I said, sure, yeah. And, um, and then that was when I asked, Jesus to come to my heart to forgive my sins. And um, then I told my mom, and then when we moved to North Carolina, I got baptized there. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a blessing to watch Sarah um, in her growth. Um, I've seen her in the past year um, wanting to to learn more and to um, read her Bible. And um, so it's been encouraging to see her in her walk. Okay, um, and now I'm going to read um, Scott's um, testimony. Like I said, um, I'm not going to give you the full version. <laughs> um, at its core, my testimony is the same as every Christian's. I have been saved by the grace of God through no merit of my own. Um, like many, I was raised in a Christian home. We prayed before meals, went to church three times a week, and sometimes sang church songs on the way there and back. God has been a very real presence since the beginning of my memories. Um, somewhere along the way, when I was still a child, I realized that going to church with my family wasn't enough to make me right in God's eyes. It didn't happen at church during a sermon or Sunday school or VBS, though I'm sure God used what I learned from those lessons. Um, in as much as my young mind could understand, I knew I was a sinner. I knew I was walking into the wide gate of destruction. I needed forgiveness, and I knew that the only way that forgiveness came was through the death 
of Jesus on the cross. I went to my parents at night and told them I needed to ask Jesus in my heart. I remember doing this once. They remember me doing it several times. Clearly, I felt the need to be forgiven a lot. That isn't to say I was saved and then resaved several times, but I did have much growing to do. This was the first stop in my story, and I like to think that night I actually remember is the night I came to know Jesus. Um, Fast forward, I think I was 12. We'd waited a few years before moving forward with baptism and church membership. My parents wanted to make sure that I knew I was what I was doing. Um, and like I said, um, any more information, um, Scott will be here next week. <laughs> um, but um, thank you for, um, we've, we've been here, um, Scott and I, it's been here since January. And so um, I thank you for the encouragement and the friends that we've made here. Thank you so much. And so between now and next week, if you have any questions about their testimony or their desire to be members of this church, feel free to ask them. And be in prayer for them and be thinking about coming together next week and welcoming them into our fellowship. For now, I'd like to uh, pray and ask the deacons to come. Father, we thank you for this time as we approach uh, the broken body you separated Jesus as we remember what he did on the cross. I pray that each of us would examine ourselves as we would take this representation of the body of Jesus.